Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. Costas, fun episode. So Rudderstack, the company that helps us put on the show, recently ran a competition around transforming data. And we are going to talk to the winner of that competition. His name is Yanni, and he works at a company called Mattermost, but you actually know Yanni from your days in the university. So I have a feeling this is going to be an extremely fun conversation. I'm going to ask the obvious question, what did he build for this competition? Little preview, it's pretty cool data governance flavored feature that relies on the concepts of data contracts, but it kind of runs in transit in the pipeline. So Pretty interesting approach. So I want to dig into that with him because I think it was a pretty creative effort. But you obviously know a lot about Yanni. So what are you going to ask? Yeah, I think it would be great to have like a go like through his journey because, okay, he, just like me, has been around for a while. And he has like an interesting journey, like from graduating to doing a PhD becoming like going into the industry, doing backend engineering to ML engineering to data engineering. So I think he has a lot to share about this journey and like in a way how the industry has evolved. And then like, I think it would be great also to spend some time with him and learn from his experience about data engineering, ML engineering, the boundaries between the two. and what it takes like to make sure that like both functions operate correctly. So let's do that and chat with him. And I'm sure there are like going to be some fun moments remembering the past there. So let's see. Let's do it. Yanni, welcome to the Data Stack Show and congratulations on winning Rudderstack's Transformations Challenge. It was really cool to see all the submissions and you won. Thank you. First of all, thanks for having me. It's great to talk with all of you. Thank you for your words for the submission. I think I was pretty lucky because there were a lot of great submissions out there. Cool. We'll talk about that challenge and we want to hear what you built because it actually relates to data quality, data contracts, data governance, lots of topics that we've covered on the show that are super relevant. But first, give us your background. You actually have a connection to Costas in your past, which we, I want to dig into a little bit later. But uh, yeah, give us your background and tell us what you do for work today. Yeah. So I'm a data engineer at Matterport. I received my PhD in electrical engineering a few years ago. That's where I actually uh, know Costas from. After receiving the PhD, I started working as an adjunct lecturer, teaching object-oriented programming with Java, database systems, and software engineering. Then I moved to, to, to the industry, initially as a Java backend engineer, and then later as a machine learning engineer. But, you know, the, these things are kind of connected, and I gradually moved 
to the latest field, which is data engineering. Love it. And just give us a quick overview. You work at Mattermost. What does Mattermost do? Just give us a quick. So Mattermost provides secure collaboration for technical teams. Mattermost serves governments, banks, tech giants, everybody who needs to accelerate productivity and reduce error rates while meeting nation state level security and compliance requirements. They have this really nice tool and a lot of customers that range from US Air Force to Bank of America, Tesla Motors, Meta, Facebook, and all these great companies. Wow. Uh, incredible. Okay. Well, let's talk about the transformations challenge really quick. So Ruddersack, and of course I work for Ruddersack, so I'm familiar with this, but we want to hear it in your words. Our customers love our transformations feature. First of all, tell us, you, you explain transformations to us. What is Ruddersack's transformations feature? And maybe what are some of the ways that you use it at Mattermost? So transformations is a way to modify incoming events or filter events before they reach your the final destination. So as soon as the client files an event and it's detected by Rutherstack, Rutherstack runs this transformation. The transformation follows its logic and then stores the result that uh, so it's uh, you can think it of changing the order where the load and transformation happens. So it's up to you to decide whether you do the transformation or what which transformation you do after the data are loading the database or before. Got it. And what are some of the ways that you use transformations at Mattermost? You know, because you stream data so, from like multiple, you know, iOS, Android, web, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So we don't currently use transformations where we're investigating. And we have a lot of data coming from clients. Uh, and we were thinking about modifying the organization of the data and how events are stored in the data warehouse. So one of the things that we were thinking is whether we can filter some events that were coming as noise, but there's also some bugs that might happen. And, you know, these bugs might exist in servers that have a, a, an older version of the code. And, you know, you, you can't wait for the customer, or you can't force the customer to, to upgrade something that is installed on-prem. Yeah. So we can use the transformation in order to reconcile for these bugs that we might uh, identify. Oh, interesting, right. So it's like someone's running an older version of iOS, so they have like a previous version of your instrumentation, but then you update the instrumentation on newer versions, and so you need to fix the payload to sort of align with the new schema. Yeah. That's one way. The other way is that Mattermost also has this server component where you can install it on-prem. Mm -hmm. And the, this server component, the maintenance of this component is something that might be outside of our control. Uh, but the data that we receive is something that we can modify using the transformations. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So someone installs it on-prem, but you need to modify the data to sort of align it. So you cross customer analytics. Super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell us about tell us about the transformation you built. What was the original problem you were thinking about when you, you know saw the competition and wanted to build something? It's not something that you know it's uh, 
it's not out there. It's something that uh, exists in my mind as an idea. And I was planning to experiment with that. And the challenge is what pushed me to, to actually go on and implement it. So the idea is that when you receive events from various sources, from various teams in the company, you have to agree on the payload so that the data engineers know what to expect, what are the expected fields, properties that end up as columns in the tables and so on. So one way to, there are various ways to try to enforce these contracts that are agreed between the product teams and the data engineering team. And one option is to have these contracts in a form of version controlled files, like schemas. And the transformation is checking whether the events are adhering to these schemas that you have specified so far. Yep. So you have an event coming in and let's say like one of the challenges is either maybe a versioning challenge like we talked about before, where someone's uh-huh. running an old version of the app and so the scheme is different. You need to modify that. Like that could be one way that it doesn't align or the developers implement something that maybe isn't quite accurate or they change something. And so, you know, as a data engineering team, it's a way for you to flag that in transit to make sure that nothing breaks downstream. Yeah, exactly. So let's say that you have anything called that to cart and you agree that the properties are going to be A, B, and C. But then for some reason, for some news communication, it's different teams, somebody goes ahead and adds an additional property called D. Mm. So by checking the schema and depending on how strict we want to be, we can either discard the event or we can send a notification that we notice a new event with a different schema and we need to take action. All right. Well, tell us, give us just a brief overview of how this works uh, in Rudderstack transformations. Like how did you wire it up? So uh, I used the transformations in the, the JavaScript part of the transformations. It's great that Rudderstack offers both Python and uh, JavaScript transformations. I went for for the JavaScript part because it was the part I wasn't being that confident. I'm more familiar with uh, with Python, so I wanted this kind of challenge. Um, so I'm going to focus both on offering a solution, but also investigate how you can apply good engineering practices in writing transformations. Hmm. So it, uh, it, there's already a repo that's public uh, for this. The, the link is in the submission. The code there is, it uses a, a, a library for parsing schemas. And in the transformation, what you do is you define the schemas, you map the schemas to the event names, and then the transformation checks for each event which schema corresponds to this event, does the validation, and you can decide whether to discard or just log the error message. There's also in the repo, there's also some additional code about testing the transformation, how to set up test events, CICD on the transformation, and all these standard practices. Love it. And we'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Very cool. What a creative way to sort of explore an implementation of data governance 
with Rudderstack transformations. I love it. What was the most enjoyable part of building the transformation that you built for the competition? Uh, seeing work. So <laughs> you see this dopamine rush. Yeah, definitely. But I think it went really smooth. I, I didn't spend a lot of time writing the code. So I really liked that it was uh, really fast to prototype and then uh, I, I feel like I spend more time in writing tests and setting up the project structure rather than actually writing the transformation. So this thing was really nice. And uh, the user interface of Rudderstack for testing on Rudderstack, the, uh, the transformation is also really helpful. Great. Well, uh, congrats again. Super cool project. Okay, let's... I want to ask you another question because I your background is really interesting. So you studied electrical engineering, then you got into sort of software development, specifically backend development, and then you got into data engineering. That's a super interesting story. But at the beginning, you were in school with Costas. And so I want to hear maybe like your best and worst memory of Costas when you were in school with him. <laughs> I think it's the same thing. I, I think <laughs> me and Costas were going to the same lab in order to get free internet. Ah, free internet in the lab. Yeah, yeah. so so I won't say our age, but uh, <laughs> back then we had dial-up modems, so we didn't have a lot of internet available in, in our home. So we used to go to specific labs or run some errands for some uh, uh, assistance uh, to the lab so that we can get access to uh, to, uh, to the lab and be able to, to stay there and code or search the internet back then or talk yeah. to IRC. Yeah, IRC. That's good. Is that where you met is doing that? It was this, it was, we were in the same semester. So, Costa? Yeah, we we're same of the same, yeah. We're same the same class. I mean, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. We don't want like to disclose our age, but it's been a while. So, <laughs> okay. Well, I do have to back, ask a question here. Back then, wait. Like, back then, like at the university, so there were like a couple of very specific spots where you could like meet with people, right? Like one was like the coffee shop at the school, right? Where you would end up there, like, meeting with people and drinking coffee. And then it was, like, the labs where we would do something like what Yanis was describing. Because keep in mind that back then, like, having access, like, to goods, like, an internet connection was, like, pretty much non-existent in Greece. So, okay, that was one of the benefits of, like, being in at the School of, like, Electrical and Computer Engineering in Greece. Like, had access to very fat pipe for that time, right? Yeah, uh, it was one of the main reasons for I started my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That, okay, I do have to ask though, surely at night you weren't like just working on schoolwork. Like, of course you played games in the lab, right? With other people from school with the internet connection? Yeah, so... Okay, then now you are getting into the uh, the interesting parts of like 
Well, the problem is that like the more questions you ask, the easier it will is going to be for people like to figure out our age. That's <laughs> not the problem. Okay. I'm not. I didn't yeah. mention any game. Names of games. I, I'm just saying, like you know, based on my own experience, like yeah, but okay, like you have to do that at the end. Like we have to talk about. Mm -hmm. But there were like I think like two main things. One was like Quake Arena that we had like uh, a server at the university, and yes. we mm -hmm. at home with that. And I think like the that was like part of that was hosted in CS Lab, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. I don't remember where it was hosted. Where, where I started. I think I, the person was yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Yorgos Tsukalas who was like hosting that on his own like personal server. There. Anyway, and then there was a lot of uh, like people were getting together, like especially I think like in Soap Lab and like playing StarCraft. Yes, I think I think something like that. But I mean, one of the finest memories I have is with Quick Alina, where we were attending a class, let's say, and everybody logged into the server. Uh, we used the names of the professors as uh, nicknames. And it was funny because it was, you know, old CRT screens. And whenever the professor who was teaching at that moment started working towards the back, you could hear alt tap and the click uh, on the screen. So it was like a wave coming. To the back, to it's one of the funniest memories I have. It's unbelievable. I love, I love that that sounds like you know. I love that this is happening in the context of a PhD. That's just so great. No, but it was before the PhD. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so electrical engineering, Quake Arena. Yanni, why did you get into the world of software? I went to the school because of software. I liked computer since I was a young one. I wanted to study something related to the software. So it's how it felt. I mean, all the pieces fell in place and I studied that. So even though I was in an electrical engineering department, well, practically it was electrical and computer engineering. I focus mostly on the software part because I, I like it most. Then I tried the bit academia because it's very, you know, something like the next step to try after a PhD in Greece. A variety of reasons were there, but I always want to also, you know, I didn't want to be only the guy who teaches software. I also wanted to write software. And part of that, part of the economic crisis back in Greece, Back then, I moved completely to, to the industry at that point. And I've been enjoying it since, since then. Yeah, and something that we need to clarify something here, like the, the school we attended it was like the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering. So the schools were never like separated in the technical university we went, at least. So if you wanted to go and study computer engineering, you had to torture yourself with electrical engineering for a while, together with a couple of other things too. Actually, it's a, okay. I, and I, I have like to be honest with myself here. Although at the beginning, like I didn't enjoy it that much that we had like all this variety of like different like stuff to learn and go through. At the end, it was like a very 
interesting experience to learn all these different things and have yeah. like a much more, let's say, complete like engineering training, ranging from like classical electrical engineering to stuff with telecommunications to electronics to software. Game theory. Yeah. It, it was even theoretical and stuff at the moment. It was pretty theoretical, but anyway, it was good at the end. Mm. I mean, we suffered a little bit, but at the end, I think like it paid off. So, Yanni, okay, let's let's talk a little bit about like the this journey, right? Because okay, like we've been around like for a while. We like software and the industry was like obviously like completely different back then when we graduated or even when we entered like the the school. Today, as you said, like you have like the title of like the data engineer. Let's talk about this general a little bit and like your experience, right? Like how you have experienced like the change in the industry. And let's focus like on some things that you, at least like from your perspective, like you find like interesting to share and maybe surprising also. So when I start, uh, as I said earlier, I started as a Java back in the engineer. So Java was the hot thing back then. So it was slow, we relatively slow when compared to other programming languages, but uh, it was building up at the moment. And there was a great community uh, back in Greece at that time. I tried that, liked it, and we're talking about uh, you know early days of Spring and uh, you know just, just moving away from servers and servlets and all, all of this stuff. Gosh, I forgot the name. Then I had an opportunity to start working remotely, which was uh, uh, around 2012, something like that. And I started working for, for a, a data science team. Mm-hmm. So initially as a Java backend engineer, who was responsible for integrating machine learning algorithms with uh, with the rest of the systems. So the interesting thing there was that it was the first time I started working with machine learning and data science. It, it was still, um, you know, kind of the early days of this revolution that's nowadays. And uh, the, the feeling I had when I left university is that there are things related to machine learning, data science, and so on, but it was a bit of romantic. They, it wasn't easy to apply them in the industry while we were studying. But I joined that company exactly at the, the point of uh, this uh, renaissance, let's say, that uh, I start with Scikit, NumPy, and all these, uh, these tools. It was really interesting times because it's not as easy as it is now. So in order to run uh, Scikit uh, back then, you had to compile the whole thing from scratch. So yeah. it was challenging even to get uh, things wrong. We're talking about early zero dot something versions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I really liked and what really surprised me back then was how if you have a business objective and the proper data and you store the data, you can use algorithms to to make estimates and make guesses or to help improve or optimize your objective. And this was really interesting to see in action. Yeah, that's cool. But by the way, I mean, we have, like, let's say traditionally, when we were talking about like ML and data science 
we always have like Python in our mind, right? Like that's like, let's say the most common like language in the ecosystem that is used. But you mentioned that like you were doing like backend stuff like in Java, right? So how did this work? Like how do you, let's say, bridge like Java with the yeah. of like Python? Yeah, so initially we started implementing some of the algorithms in Java back then. So it was basic. It was rather simple algorithms like a priori or, or FP growth and or similar. But then at some point you needed to with logistic regression or some other things then. You needed to work with Python because there, there were a lot of libraries. So there was a layer of integration that was responsible for gathering the data and sending them to an inference endpoint. So mm -hmm. the Java part was gathering the data, doing all the aggregation and preparation, and then sending them to, to, to the Python code. Okay. So Java was doing, like, let's say, more of like the data engineering part of. Uh, right. pre pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. But uh, it was this evolved back at this company. It was at work at the uh, it was named Odesk back then. Yeah. Um, so we actually built uh, some tooling that allowed us to have models that were versioned that we could deploy and allow to to work asynchronously and independently. So. Mm -hmm. You could, you know, use this tool to give training of models and to keep a log of your experiments. And then the Java code would only need to point to the proper model. Hmm. Yeah, you were doing like MLOps work back when MLOps was not a term, right? Like, well. Yes, exactly, exactly. But it's not only this. It's uh, the other part that's really important is about making sure that you have the data. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that's definitely important. So, for example, if you might need a custom profile, so you need the daily snapshot because it's hard to go back historically every day and calculate the profile. And you also need to store this so that you have historical data so that mm -hmm. you can train your model without, you know, having recent data creeping in as past data and all these kind of problems that you can get in ML. Uh, so yeah, that, that's definitely also part of, it was part of the work and I think it's still easy. It's one of the most interesting parts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about that because actually it's interesting. So you mentioned like a few of the challenges that you had back then, like working, like having this ML workload. How did you deal with them like back then and how you would deal with them today? So, so we can see like how these 10 years have like changed the way that we are doing things like in data engineering. Yeah. So back then it's funny because it looks like a full circle. So one thing that we had back then is capturing the data. So we were capturing the data, storing them into a file system or S3 and then moving them to a data warehouse. And then we used SQL queries for doing the transformation. Uh, and the, the output of the transformation was the training data for the model. 
and something similar for the prediction, although you might need it to call uh, some APIs in order to get more recent data because they might not be yet available in the data warehouse. So that, that goes uh, one thing. This change over time, you know, with all these uh, tools that uh, were made available with the advent of cloud computing uh, and all these nice tools. So it's still pretty common to, when you have data to just dump them to an S3 bucket, for example, so that you have them available and then you decide what to do with them. But then you also need to, to load them to somewhere to perform the transformation. So for the transformation part, you can either use something like Spark or the different variations that you have out there. You can use SQL, you can use SQL using something like Presto or Athena, or you can use a data warehouse to, to load the data to the warehouse. So the, there, there are a lot of options. There's also the, the other like Hadoop and all, all these uh, things. And then it's also always depend. It also always depends on the use case. So in some cases where you just need some offline computation, so you can just create a batch of that runs every night, let's say, and calculate some results, and then you cast these results into a database so that it's faster to query them. Or you might need streaming uh, queries. So you might need to offer a, a string like Kafka or whatever. And for each item that's coming out of this stream to, to perform a prediction uh, and so on. So it, it really depends on the use case and what you want to achieve. There is, you know, it, it's like everything in software. You, you have to understand what your what's your objective and then start working towards what are the best technologies to use yeah so if you had like to let's say someone comes to you and is like i'm considering like getting into like data engineering like it's software engineer but they haven't like worked like in data engineering before and they ask you like okay what are like the most common like use cases right like what are the most common things that like as a data engineer like you sit there, right? Like, what would this be? Like, what's the first thing that comes in your mind? Like, as the let's say three, four most common like use cases that pretty much mm -hmm. organization out there when it comes to data engineering deals with. The first one is data collection. So you have various sources or ingestion. So you have various sources and you want to load them to your systems or to, to at least store them in a te temporary place so you can use them downstream. And this can be either from databases or, or, or other systems. It can be from user actions and events, and you might need this for product analytics and so on. And the second part is some transformation in order to build some some end results that, uh, you know, you gather the data from the various sources and you want to combine them in order to build a story or to try to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. So th this is uh, another common case. You definitely need at uh, some points to, to send the data to some other systems owned by the company like Salesforce or, I don't know, 
HR systems or whatever. So kind of reverse CTL so that it's available to sales to do this, this integration. And there's also the data science machine learning part. So these are the most common things. I think I might be forgetting something, but yeah. Why are, why DS and ML is different than, let's say, the rest of the stuff that you are doing with data? So in ML, there's a lot of exploration. So it's not like you, you have something solid to work on. So ML is about optimizing things yeah. most of the time. And actually, this is one of the most important things when working with data and especially with uh, ML. The first thing you need to understand is what is your business objective and what you want to achieve. One of the most common cases that you might not go as planned is that there is no clear objective. So usually your objective is not to achieve specific precision and recall, for example, but your objective is to improve sales, for example, or to improve the lifetime prediction or to improve certain prediction and, yeah. and so on. And then you use the models and you model because, and actually that's why they are called model, because we're trying to model the problem in order to provide an estimation and so on. And these are proxy metrics that you can use to, to work towards goal. Mm-hmm. So this is the most important thing to, to remember. Yeah. And how does it work between like the data engineer and the ML engineer, right? Because okay, the data engineer, let's say you are responsible for making sure that the data is available. There are like pipelines that they prepare the data, blah, 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 like all that stuff. And then you have the ML engineer who, as you very well said, like it's all about experimentation, right? It's all about being scrappy in a way. There's no order, right? Like you have to get in front of like a bunch of data and like trying like to do something. So how have you seen like successfully? And if you also have seen like some unsuccessful attempts, that would be also great like to hear from you, like working together as like data engineers and ML engineers. I think for the ML engineers, the most important part is to, to have ease of access to the data and the data being easy to use. So usually data scientists and machine learning engineers are fluent enough in SQL or in other languages so that they can build some transformation in order to be able to, to use the models. What might be challenging is the whole integration with other systems. Although, you know, it's a blurry line there. Where is the border of ML engineering and data engineering? Mm. So let's say that you have a, a monolith. Let's say that your company's architecture is a monolith and you want to get the data in order to work with this data. The ML engineer can't go directly to the production database and use the data from there because they might run heavy queries, which is really common. So they might need a replica and they might need to combine it with uh, data coming from a CDP or from something uh, uh, external. So they need to have enough freedom in order to be able to, to achieve their goals. Mm. 
So how would you define like the boundaries between data engineering and ML engineering? Then like, where do you think that these boundaries should be uh, set? It's really hard to answer this, I think. I mean, these terms are continuously evolving over the, the past years. I mean, and you know, uh, quite often the title in one company is means yeah. something different in another company. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of overlap. I think that the data engineer is the person who is closer to the ingestion and loading the data and taking the data quality and okay. all of the things. The ML engineer is responsible mostly for making sure that the data are in good enough format so that the, the data science models can use them. Mm. But again, it's a blurry line. It's, it's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So let me like ask the question like in a bit of a different way. So what is something that you have to do as part of like an ML task that you hate doing as a data engineer? Like that you wouldn't like to do? Like I, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have like to deal with that. Uh, I love software. So I've got all of these hats and it's hard to, <laughs> to say, okay. So I, I like challenges. And so I think, yeah, what most people hate is uh, clean data and they expect that the data engineer yeah. has clean data, but that's really hard. In most mm -hmm. of the cases, cleaning the data is 80% of your time or is even more. Yeah. Uh, that's what, and that's what, what's helping. I wouldn't count as an ML engineer to be to have to write ingestion pipelines for multiple sources. So, mm -hmm. for example, I would prefer that this is a solved problem when it comes to, you know, to, to cleaning data. So the data are gathered in, in a way so that I can process them all together. I don't have to build custom logic to, to load everything. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like you mentioned like JSON. So like what's like the... What's like the the hard part of like let's say the annoying part of like dealing with that data? Poorly uh, from formats. So mm. if I am to say I don't like something, it's a CSV. Mm -hmm. So for example, C CSV has a lot of time. CSV is not a single format, and so when misused as a single format, but you know, you need to define the separators, escape characters, what you mm -hmm. do with escape characters, special characters, and then, you know, you have all these peculiarities that some tools have. So I don't know, for example, Redshift has its own peculiarities about handling CSV and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I, I don't know if this is what you're asking. Ah, actually, it's like a very great topic. I have like more questions here. So let's go through like a little bit of the, let's say, the flow of the work there until the data gets to the ML engineer, right? So the data comes from like various sources and obviously like in different formats, right? Different serializations and even like in the same, let's say, serialization, you might have like different schemas, right? So, and going back, like, for example, the way, the reason, like, the, what you submitted and won, like, in the context was about, like, taking the schema of some events, right? 
So this first part of like dealing with the data, right? It's like you can have data coming like in Avro, data coming in, I don't know, like Protobuf, CSV, JSON, and I don't know, like what else. How big part of like work that like the engineer has to do is to deal with like all these different like formats and making sure that they don't get into the way of whatever happens later on, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you need to think about the layers, let's say, of the data or the zones or, uh, that are some sometimes called. So you have to have something like a landing zone where all this data land on your system and you need to start processing and adding checks if possible to make sure that if something changes, you either identify it fast enough or you raise an error. So, you know, yeah. if something breaks, you, you, you can... Uh, you can figure this out uh, as soon as possible. So yeah, likely nowadays it's easy to have to do ingest most of these formats, and most of them are pretty common and uh, on, on how to handle them. Um, there is a need for you to you know to know the specifics of each format. I mean. Because I think the biggest problem is the representation of the data, not the format of the data, the representation. So uh, by this, I mean, how would you model something that it's optional? Would you consider null as a valid value or something as a missing value? And let's say that you have a JSON document. And what does it mean that the property is missing on a specific row? Is it, uh, does it mean that it's unknown or that the user didn't define them? So this is a, a bit of the annoying part because it requires a lot of back and forth with the source. And sometimes you don't have access to the team that created this data. But uh, yeah, so you definitely need this first layer to clean the data and to have them, you know, in a format that... It's pretty solid, not super solid. It's still flexible. Not it doesn't vary from the original source, but it it does the basic cleaning, renaming, applies your basic conventions, and, and so on. Mm. So, if we were to talk about data quality, like what are like the parameters of data quality? Okay, we touched one of these. We talked about like the semantics of like how data is like represented in the different formats, like, and all these things. What is, like, creating, what else creates, like, problems with, like, data quality? Uh, that's a great question, and I don't have one answer. So I think that each organization defines data quality in a different way. Mm -hmm. There are various dimensions of data quality that you can discuss about, but, you know, depending on your use cases and what you want to achieve, you might want to focus on some of them. So you can think about consistency, like you know, having multiple sources of truth for the same data, whether these sources are consistent, uh, whether you have duplicate values, etc. You can think about completeness, whether you have missing data, mm. which is also important. Uh, you can think about accuracy, how representative are the data to reality? 
whether the data are in the expected format. So let's say that you have a date and you need to know that it's in the proper format so that it does not get misinterpreted. Whether the data are fresh, presence is another one I can think from the top of my mind. And there's also two more that are sometimes overlooked. So one is accessibility. So how easy it is to access the data? So mm -hmm. th does it take a long time for some member of the team to get access to the data? Do they have to wait for some, I don't know, either technical or business reason? And finally, how easy it is to use the data. So if you just give someone an S3 packet with all the files, it might not be easy for them to use, but if you've done the ingestion and you have proper naming in the columns, etc., it would be way more easy for them to work on that. Again, th there might be way more, and it definitely depends on, on the use case. For example, if you are working on open source data sets, you might, some of these things might be more important than the rest. Or you might want to also have versioning as part of the data quality and mm -hmm. so on. So yeah, definitely a lot of things. Yeah. So, okay. Dealing with like data quality, pretty much like, I guess like on a daily basis, what do you think is missing right now in terms of like tooling out there to make your life like easier? I think there's a lot of tools out there right now. I think that they're trying to. You have a lot of freedom with most of these tools. And actually, this is especially for modern projects. This is one of the main challenges. There is a lot of freedom on how you structure your project. So there are emerging practices right now. So some of these things have been solved in the past, but you know we have to adapt them to, to the new tooling, etc. So solid definitions of data quality and solid examples on how to measure it is one thing. Mm. And then there's, uh, you know, the, the other challenge I see is that most of the tools focus on specific parts of data quality. Mm. So for example, you might have a tool that focuses on identifying missing values. But this, you might not be able to reuse this tool in order to find whether the distribution of the values changes over time. So you will need a different tool for that. So it's becoming challenging. You know, it's a lot of tools to to achieve the same goal. Yeah, makes sense. That, that's interesting. Actually, like if you think about it, like data quality itself is like a lot of pro requires like a lot of processing on its own, right? Like there's like a yeah. lot of analytics that you need to do like on the data like just to exactly. measure these things and it's interesting so okay one last question from me and then like i'll hand the microphone back to eric what uh, is like one thing that has happened like in the past i don't know couple of months or like year or whatever that in your space like in data engineering that like really got you like excited for the future and you can't include Rutherstack in your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Answer, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 
can be a tool. It can be like a new technology. It can be yeah. Anything, yeah. Right? like a practice, like whatever. So I really like how DPT is maturing over time. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. What I really liked was this rapid AI ecosystem with the data frames and how you can you can use them. I, I haven't used it in production, just you know, for personal experimentation. But this sounds like a really interesting approach. Mm -hmm. Cool, that's awesome, Eric. All yours again. All right. Well, I'm actually going to conclude on a question for both of you. And that is, are there any games that you still play either on the PC or, you know, with a console or even on your phone? Candy Crush doesn't count. Um, okay. Yeah. do you want to go first? My, my kid owns my consoles. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a lot of time for games, but usually it's me helping him on some of the games. So we really enjoy playing games together. Like we have a Nintendo Switch, so we have this Mario Party and yeah. Super Mario Kart and all these things. But lately he's been really excited about a, an older game called Subnautica. Huh. It's a survival game and he likes exploring seeing the world there. Very cool. And me, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to get close to computer games. So, <laughs> is that because of consequences you've experienced in the recent past? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Like, I don't know. I hope in the future I'll be able to play again, to be honest. By the way, one of the things that I noticed at some point is okay, we used like to play like. Quake Arena, for example, right? Which yes. yeah, back then, like when we were like in our like early twenties or like late teens or whatever, we were doing like pretty amazing stuff. Like I remember, especially like some folks that were playing with us. I mean, it was like so hard, like to beat them, like the how fast they were, like all that stuff. And then I remember like trying to play one of these games again, like after like a couple of years, and I felt so old. Like my like like you can't like like there's like zero chances of like being able like to compete. You lost your edge. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I remember I had a friend, sorry, I mean, like another guy yeah. who was playing to me, like same age. They're like come back from work and they get like on Xbox like like a gang of like old dudes they get on one of these like first person shooters online they know that it's going to be a massacre right like they are all going to die like they are not going to enjoy but they figured out a way to enjoy not enjoying the game by just being all together making fun having a beer and like getting on the game and like getting massacred by kids so i don't know i see myself like probably being one of these guys one day, but we'll see. Love it. Well, thank you for sharing stories about Quake Arena and naming your characters after your professors. Yanni, incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing. We learned a ton, you know, especially about data engineering, ML, uh, and the influence of software development on data engineering. So thank you so much and congrats again on 
winning the Rudder Sack Transformations Challenge. Thanks for having me. Costas, what an awesome episode with Yanni. I mean, it's clear that the big takeaway is that if you neglect your Quake, Quake Arena practice, those skills will atrophy over time and will cause regrets for you. <laughs> um, uh, I was, actually made me think about Duke Nukem. You remember Duke Nukem? <laughs> yeah, I do. That was, again, like you had those friends who were just like, how, you know, how did you get so good at this? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Well, it's interesting how, I mean, if you think about like, because we had like this conversation with Jans and like, I started like remembering like how we were, you know, like playing games and stuff like that back then. And so there were like a couple of things like in Quake Arena that, Okay, you've had like first of all, like it was crazy to see with a railgun, like the aim that some people had and like how they could do like headshots. That was like crazy. I mean, I don't know what kind of like reflexes like this. I never like managed to get to that level, but like there were people that like when they entered the arena, like you would just leave because it didn't make sense. Like it was almost like cheating, you know, and they yeah. were not cheating. And usually this was the result of like spending way too many hours like playing instead of studying. That's oh, 100%. Yeah. Like an effect on your... Oh, those, yeah. I mean, you're talking about people who would like take the mouse apart and like clean the ball and like clean the mouse pad before the game, you know, because they had like a oh, very... The ball. The ball. The ball, like something that doesn't exist anymore. Okay, like yes, the ball. exactly. Yeah, but it's super important because, like, you know, once you got really good, you could tell if the ball got dirty. Like, it yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and yeah, measuring the ping to the server, like, because yeah, that was oh, yeah, so good. Um, the other thing that I think, like, it's a testament of like the human creativity here is that there was like this thing going to, like the rocket jump, right? Which but with the default like settings, you couldn't do it because you were actually like exploding yourself, right? But we were changing like the settings so you could use like the rocket jumping, and that's like completely like changing like the way that you were playing, right? So yep. actually, it's like very interesting to see how people were not just like playing, but also. How to like innovating on top of like the game to make it like a new game, right? Hundred uh, percent. Well, I, I think that's actually a really good. You know, that was really fun to talk about. That when we think about the episode and talking with Yanni, you know, who now works as a data engineer mm-hmm. at Mattermost, you know, who does really interesting work around super high security team collaboration, you know, for the Air Force and for, you know. Bank of America and other huge companies. He's a systems thinker, right? He breaks down systems. I mean, he studied electrical engineering and we got a really interesting view at sort of his art going from electrical engineering, backend software development, ML engineering, and then now data engineering. And hearing about that story was absolutely fascinating, but it's true. I mean, it sounds funny, but the way that you talked with him about trying to break down the Quake Arena game and like execute that, you know, during class and other things like that. 
it was a bunch of really smart, creative people like solving a systems problem, right? And so that's really, really cool to me to hear his story. And I think anyone who's interested in sort of transitioning from different disciplines and taking the best of that discipline with you to the next one, this is a really great episode. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like Jan's like give like I think like a very pragmatic, like um, how to that description of how like the fundamentals at the end like do not change. I think like he mentioned also like a couple of times of like how we go like back in circles in the way and things that we were doing in the past we like do again like today and like all these things and that's not actually like a bad thing. Like it's a good thing. Like innovation doesn't mean like throwing away completely what was happening in the past and bringing like a completely different paradigm. Like it's much more, uh, let's say, iterative in a way. And there are fundamentals that they remain there, no matter what. Like some things cannot change. Like the fundamentals are there. And so investing time in like learning these fundamentals and enjoying working with these fundamentals, I think it's probably like the most important thing that like someone can do in their career. And... It doesn't matter. Like if you have them, you can go through software engineering, backend engineering, frontend engineering, ML to data engineering and whatever is next. So I think it's a great episode for anyone who wants like to learn about that. I agree. Well, thank you for joining us. Definitely subscribe if you haven't. Tell a friend. Give us feedback. Head to the website, fill out the form, send us an email. Actually, send an email to Brooks at datastackshow.com. He'll respond faster than Mir Casas. And we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Datastack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.